0: Well, welcome, good morning, I am glad that you are here, and uh, maybe after sitting in this warm room and hearing the passage that was just read about the terrifying judgment of God, you are thinking that this was intentional, this was not intentional, and, uh, and yet there is a serious... Often avoided subject that is staring us in the face this morning in and through the Word of God. And so let's pray that we would graciously receive that Word. Our Holy God, would you allow us to lean into your Word? Would you allow us to look at the uncomfortable for a few moments? And we pray that in listening and submitting to your Word, that we would find joy because we learn and we see more of you. And so help us not pick and choose what we want to about who you are. Help us to submit to all of who you are, including your righteous wrath. And so would you grant us grace over the next few moments? Would the sermon that is heard be far more effective than the one that is preached? You've given us this word, I am convinced, not to drive us to despair, but to drive us to you. And so, Holy Spirit, bring us to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, after hearing that passage and... Thinking about wow, there was an encouraging series that we just walked through in Philemon. We heard two uh, helpful sermons on endurance in the Christian life and unity in the church. It seems that we are in downer territory this morning. And uh, let's be honest, our passage centers on the heavy, ominous language of God's judgment. And in our day, the subject of divine judgment is not a popular topic. And I'm sure, it, uh, I'm sure we could say that probably has never been a day that the subject of divine judgment is a popular topic, but the reality of God's judgments, they're rooted in His all-consuming holiness. This morning, we have leaned into the character, the holy character of God, and trying to think about who God is, because only in rightly knowing who God is can we rightly understand who we are. And so God's judgments are rooted in his holiness, but his judgments are also rooted in our uh, God's ro- judgments are rooted in his righteousness and his holiness, but they're also rooted in our lack of righteousness, in our failures, in our shortcomings, and in our rebellion against his perfect ways. And so I'm sure that many Christians uh, didn't wake up this morning thinking, "Let's gather with the people of God to consider God's righteous judgment for My sin. And we're living in one of the most unprecedented times in history where there is a moral revolution that's taking place. And what's being prized and treasured more than anything else in this revolution is the devotion, the intense devotion to personal autonomy. This insistence that I have the freedom to do whatever it is that I think is right and best. Not only do I have that freedom, how dare you look into how I'm living my life and tell me that it's wrong, to tell me that somehow I'm missing the mark. I want to be free from any outside external restraints or accountability. And so that's led to us being at a place as a culture where we can marry literally whomever we want to marry. We can be whatever gender we want to be. We can identify as whoever we want to identify as. I can choose whatever I want to do. And the belief is that I not only make the decisions for myself, but I give an account to no one else. And to question this or to insist on anything other than this is unloving, it's offensive, and it's contrary to me conducting my life, making my own definitions, creating my own standard of truth. In short, you can't say anything negative because I get to be God. I'm calling the shots. I'm defining what's true and not true. And this is what our culture is force-feeding us, and it's precisely this commitment to self-autonomy that's the essence of sin. Rather than submitting ourselves to the good rule and reign of God over us, we choose our own way. And in doing so, we believe that we cannot, nor will we not, be held accountable to anyone outside of us And yet we open the word of God and God says, not so fast, not so fast. And in a great act of mercy, God has preserved the words of the Old Testament prophets whom he raised up to speak his word to his people to accomplish his purposes throughout history. And one of the most consistent aspects of the messages of God's prophets that he raised up to speak to his people throughout the Old Testament was that this one true holy God will hold his people, all people, accountable for how they live before him. And this morning, the prophet Zephaniah will make clear to you and I that this accountability and this judgment, it is indeed coming. And it's coming to a head in what Zephaniah refers to as the great day of the Lord. And so let's locate the prophet Zephaniah in the history of God's people. Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of a king named Josiah. Josiah was a good king. He sought to reform and do right in the sight of God. Zephaniah is a contemporary of Nahum. Of Jeremiah, of Habakkuk, and of, of Ezekiel. You see, if we go back and we think God's people really hit their peak under King David and under King Solomon, just ballpark averaging, thinking around 1000 BC. The very next generation after King Solomon, we see sin beginning to show its devastating effects. We see the people of God at the height of their prosperity, at the height Of enjoying the blessings and the favor of God, we see God's people divided into two kingdoms the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. After many years of consistent willful idolatry, the northern kingdom of Israel is eventually conquered and they're exiled by Assyria in 722 BC. God raises up Amos and Moses uh, and Hosea, not, not Moses. He had already raised up Moses. He raised up Amos and Hosea and Micah and the prophet Isaiah to warn his people of the judgment that would come. And yet Israel is persistent in their sin. They do not heed the warnings of God from the prophets. And so what do we find then? We find that the southern kingdom of Judah, they continue on, and they continue on in large part due to the miraculous protection of God from the other nations and other countries that were around them. King Hezekiah, who's mentioned in verse one, he would be the great, great grandfather of Zephaniah. King Hezekiah is a good king. He brings many reforms back to Judah in hopes of removing their idolatry and honoring the Lord. And yet King Hezekiah dies and the next two two, uh, successors, Manasseh, and Amon are wicked kings, 57 years of wickedness for the people of Judah. And then Josiah comes on the scene. And Josiah seeks to follow in, his, uh, in King Hezekiah's footsteps in making the people once again honoring to the Lord. In the middle of Josiah's reign, they rediscovered the book of the law that's been sort of hidden and forgotten about in the temple. They uncover it, and Josiah really just begins to take the reforms. Uh, he takes all of his cues for the reforms from the book of the law. Zephaniah, who was a, a contemporary of Josiah, hears this, and many of the prophecies that, Ze- that Zephaniah gives us, they reflect the Mosaic covenant. It's as if Zephaniah is looking at the law of God and speaking words of prophetic judgment. If you, if you have time and you just think, ah, sometimes I struggle to think God is really vicious in the way in which he punishes sin, just read Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28 is literally just loaded with God saying, if you bless me, you will be well. If you obey me, you will be blessed. And if you disobey me, it will not go well for you. And he just Literally walks through judgment after judgment that will come to the people if they do not obey. And we see Zephaniah standing up and saying, this is reality. This is what is unfolding before us. If you know anything about the history of the people of God, you will know that some 35-ish years later, after Zephaniah is off the scene, that the people of God will be conquered people of judah will be conquered will be exiled by the babylonians 586 587 bc and so many people think the book of zephaniah he's he's writing he's speaking and he's looking to this imminent judgment that will come and yet most all scholars would say but there's something about the language that he uses that it seems that though he may know that there's a more of a temporary judgment coming he seems to be speaking of something that's far greater than just the temporary judgment. And so it's this already not yet fulfillment that we see. Zephaniah looking at what will come temporarily, what will come soon, and yet also having an eye towards what will come that's even more devastating than the people of God can imagine. And so everything that we know of Zephaniah, it's written in verse 1 of Zephaniah chapter 1. And Zephaniah reaches back four generations, probably because of the first name that some of us would recognize, that name Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a righteous king. And so this means that Zephaniah then is of royal blood. He's a prophet. And he's a prophet of the word of the Lord. This isn't some poetic speech of Zephaniah. The subject is the word of God that's coming through Zephaniah, and, and the book of Zephaniah really will serve over the next three weeks, well, four weeks including today, the book of Zephaniah will serve to remind us of God's powerful judgment. And yet, as we will see in the weeks ahead, it will also serve to remind us of his equally astonishing grace. And one of the most awe evoking descriptions of God's wrath and one of the most moving descriptions of his love found anywhere in the Bible occur in this prophecy of Zephaniah. And you begin to think to yourself, how in the world can this great day of the Lord be marked by such awe-inspiring judgment and yet also by graciously lavished mercy? Zephaniah is preparing, uh, he's seeking to prepare God's people for that coming day. That coming day which will be marked by judgment and by salvation. And that ultimate day has not yet arrived. We are closer today than ever before to that ultimate day. And even just borrowing from the word of God in 2 Peter chapter 3, we would be well served to not confuse his patience with his indifference. To not confuse, it hasn't happened yet, with it probably isn't going to happen. The word of the Lord comes to Zephaniah and it begins with bone-jarring pronouncements of God's judgment. And as I mentioned in the prayer, the aim of Zephaniah chapter one is not to drive us away from the Lord in despair, but to drive us near to the Lord in faith. And that's the hope for the sermon this morning. We'll consider four truths of God's judgments that will be made clear in the day of the Lord. First truth, God's judgments are universal. God's judgments are universal. And so if I can just break that down, what that means is that every one of us, whether you're four or whether you're 98, this reality stares us in the eyes. His judgments are universal. And before we unpack the universal aspect to God's judgments are universal, let's ensure that we're truly agreed upon on the fact that these are indeed God's judgments. I mean, we see that all over Zephaniah chapter 1. These are not the angry rants These are not the religious opinions of some man. They are the words of the righteous, perfect, and holy God. And this righteous, perfect, and holy God, he is never sinfully angry. He's never wrongfully impatient. He's never unjust. He never misreads or misunderstands reality, the way in which we do. He always understands situations rightly. And he knows our hearts better than we do. He knows the words that are on the tips of our tongue before they roll off. And it's this God who we're declaring his judgments. He uses the first person all throughout this chapter. This isn't Zephaniah saying, I've got a word and this is something I'm going to do. This is the word of the Lord coming through Zephaniah the, my, the almighty, the righteous, the perfect one declaring his judgments on sin. And again, divine judgment is not a popular idea, but the word of God makes clear that it is not up for a popularity vote. You and I don't have the vote or the option to remove God from his rightful office. This is not the fabrication of religious types. This is the word of the Lord that's declared for our benefit. I'm reminded of Psalm 33, verse 4. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. So this is the word of the Lord. But his judgments are universal. Universal. The scope there of his judgment is clear in verses 2 and 3. Look again. I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea and the ruins along with the wicked. And I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That idea of completely remove, your translation may say sweep away. The idea is that it's to remove something with the purpose of putting an end to it. In his holiness, in his righteous anger, God looks down. And the presence and the reality of sin leads him to think, I want to do away with everything that is against who I am. Verse 3 reminds us of the creation account in Genesis. If you just go back and read verse 3, what you will find is literally... The exact opposite ordering of Genesis 1 is what God is going to bring judgment upon. It's as if he literally, in judgment, is undoing his creation. After the world was established, which does Genesis 1 tells us? He creates the fish, then the birds, then the beast, and then man. And here, in verse 3, he's going to undo man and the beast and the birds and fish. God said something similar to Noah and yet if you go back and read that judgment of what God was going to undo, he's not going to, in uh, Genesis chapter 6, he's not going to undo the created order of all things that are swimming in the waters. And here it's complete, it's a complete undoing, nothing escapes from this judgment And and look at verses four through six. Perhaps the most shocking prospect of everything in Zephaniah chapter one was not that he was going to do away with everything that was wicked on the face of the earth, but it's that he was going to even do away with his people. He was going to bring punishment and judgments on his people, his chosen people. Jerusalem held, it, it housed his temple. And the people of God had presumed upon their heritage, and they had become forgetful about God, and they were grossly mistaken about his hatred of sin, not just those of other nations, but including their own. I wonder how similar are we? Forgetful of the hatred, the intense, violent hatred of God against sin. And when I say that, my mind oftentimes runs to the sin of others. And maybe I begin to make allowance for my own. And Zephaniah 1 just serves to remind us, God is impartial in his judgment of sin. We often can assume that our sin is not really that bad, that it's not deserving of cataclysmic judgment from God. We can often assume that because of morality or religious activity, then we're good to go. And yet we're meant to heed the caution of God here in Zephaniah 1. As if not giving consideration to who God is and believing that he will indeed judge us for what we do with the life that we have. We are tempted regularly to sin. And the warning of Zephaniah is that if we choose to jettison God for the pursuit of other loves and other things, then we are in danger of his judgment. What we find in verses 4 through 6 is that these are those that were living in Jerusalem who were professing allegiance to God And they were involved in worshiping other gods. The false god of Baal and Milcom and the starry host, they were the functional gods of the people. And so what the people of Judah were doing is they were tipping their hat to all of the religious speak to who God is and what God required, and yet they didn't submit to his supreme authority to the Lord. Any time, friends, that we tip our hat, yeah, yeah, God, this is who you are, but we do not submit to the supreme authority he has to over us, that is wickedness. It is wicked. When we treat God as one of the options among many other viable options, that is wickedness. Jesus would even capture this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will die devoted to one and despise the other. God's judgment will come upon those who worship anyone or any other thing. You see, the sad thing about the people of God then exposes A sad reality about many professing people of God today. And that's that our religious activities can oftentimes mask our own deep paganism. I mean, when people say, I love the people of the church, I love the songs, I love the programs, I love the routines but they have a cold disinterest in God himself that is dangerous and it's deserving of judgment because God has made clear all throughout scriptures that he will not share his glory with any other and he's made clear that the whole earth will be filled with that glory and that's not just that it's going to be filled and maybe people are going to be unaware of it no 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 By the whole earth is going to be filled with it. That means an acknowledgement, a reception, a receiving it, a submission to his glory over all the earth. There's no neutrality in our relationships with God. We're either actively seeking him or we're drifting from him. And he will judge all shortcomings. Not because he's mean, but because he's holy. Perfect purity is his character. And anything that's not in line with that isn't merely an error, it is a willful rebellion, an act of violent treason against all that God is. Verse 7 serves as a solemn reminder of the appropriate response to such righteous judgments of God. And the response is be silent much like what happens during the court when the all rise comes forth. Conversation stops and respect is shown. And in many ways, this is where we need to begin. I wonder in just the regular course of our days, do you, do you make room to consider and to be moved by awe when you consider who God is? Go to any of the awe-inspiring places around the world. What you'll find when you go to the Grand Canyon, when you go to the pyramids, and what you'll find is that's not a place of silly, casual chatter. There's something that's moving. There's an awe that sets in. And our culture doesn't understand the emotion of awe. But friends, think about the one who has literally your very life and the life of every other thing in his hand. It evokes awe. This awe-inspiring God is preparing his people to be the sacrifice for their sin. He has consecrated guests that are there. Verses 8 and 9 continue the universal scope of the judgment. He says that leaders, right? And at this point, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, can we come up for air? But the text doesn't let us. Leaders there who are dressing like other nations, the leaders of other nations, those that are meant to be leading a distinct people are desiring to so assimilate and blend in to the rest of the world that that they're even reflecting the values of other leaders, those who leap over the thresholds. Most commentators think that those are superstitious practices that were taken so seriously that they became religious adherents. Walking into the temple of God and playing step on a crack and break your mama's back and believing that if we did that, there was something, something about upholding those superstitions that would earn us favor with this holy God. Why is the day of the Lord coming for his people? Verses 17 and 18. Because of their sin. God's judgments are universal. And God's judgments are earned. They're earned. I don't have time to just spell this out. But literally, Habakkuk 2.14. God promises that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory. Numbers 14 verse 21, God says, truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. And then in Psalm, we sing, sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord and bless his name. Declare his glory among the nations. And if you and I were just to begin, we could start literally at the beginning. We could start at the beginning of the Bible, we could go to the end of the Bible. Or we could pick up like in Ephesians chapter 1 in verses four through six, where we're given a picture, not only just at the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, we're we're given a picture of what happened before the foundations of the world were even laid. And what do we read? We read that God, he chose, that God, uh, he chose, he predestined, he adopted. Why? To the praise of the glory of his grace. And so before anything was ever ray, uh, was ever laid, there is this commitment that God has so that His name would be praised, so His glory would be magnified. If you were to just even jump to John chapter 17, James preached on this a few weeks ago, John chapter 17. He's praying. Jesus is praying for Christians who will come down the line throughout the halls of history. And one of the things he prays, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given to me may be with me where I am to see my glory. Before the foundations of the world, God's committed to his glory. When you think about eternity, Jesus is consumed with his glory. These judgments are earned because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And friends, this is the reality for each of us in the room. And if we are passive and indifferent to this reality, that is a dangerous place to be. Not only are his judgments universal, but number two, his judgments are inescapable. His judgments are inescapable. You see this in verses 10 through 13. Closely related to the first truth of universal judgments would be this truth, inescapable judgment. Uh, Verse 10 gives us specific places around Jerusalem that makes clear that his judgments are comprehensive. You can look at verse 10 and you hear on that day, what do you hear? You hear a cry from this gate. You hear a cry from this corner. And the picture is that there's no place to hide. God's judgments are inescapable. Similar to Psalm 139, where the psalmist asks, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? So in the same way, Zephaniah says, where can you go and flee his judgments? You can't. There's nowhere you can go to flee his judgments. And since Genesis chapter 3, humanity has been trying to hide from God in the shame and in the guilt of our sin and God through the prophet Zephaniah is declaring to us that there is no place to run to there's no place earthly speaking to take refuge in and I think in one of the more frightening places in this whole prophecy of judgment is verse 12 I just want to read it picture this it will come about at that time On the great day of the Lord, that I, God speaking, will search Jerusalem with lamps. And I will punish the men who are stagnant in spirit, who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good or evil. The frightening image of God searching Jerusalem with a lamp. There will be no hiding place undetected. There is nowhere humanity can run and find solace. And if you're here today, and in your mind, you're just sort of, uh, you continue to trip over the fact that maybe you are running from God. Allow this to just serve as a warning. You will be found out. In due time, you will be found out. No hiding place, undetected. And what's interesting, the further description that we're given about those whom the Lord is going to search out, they're not merely those that are grossly wicked. They're not those that are repulsively anti-God. They're those that are stagnant. They're those that are complacent. They're those that are lukewarm. Verse 13 implies that their complacency towards the things of God is owing in part to their material possessions. Their wealth, their homes, the produce of their vineyards had lulled them to sleep to where what consumed them most was not the awe-inspiring reality of who God is and what He will do, with the surface-scratching preoccupation with what can I do for these few years that I have been given, as though that were ultimate reality. Their complacency is a reflection of how they view their God. And friends, if you are stagnant or complacent in your walk with the Lord, that is a reflection of how you are viewing your God. If we were just given a peek into the economy of heaven right now, what we would not find is complacency and indifference. And the reason is because of the beholding of God that is taking place. And the same same reality is true for us. Does your faith have much to do with how you live day, day, By day, moment by moment. It's meant to. To be a follower of Jesus, it has to. This is what we walked through with the the letter of James. Are you a practical atheist? Are you someone who talks as if there is a God? You're willing and ready to defend your arguments for Him, but you live as though He doesn't exist. It's a scary place to be. And what's scary is that that description has often marked the church in America for the last few centuries. Hear this warning. God is not detached from the minutia of your life. He's there and in fact he will find you to give an account for all of your life and your excuses will not work then. They may work temporarily today, but they will be insufficient on that great day of the Lord. Don't fool yourself as though you can escape his judgment. Again, as I said earlier, in due time. Isaiah 45, 23, quoted in Romans 14, 11, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. There's no escaping this. And so not only do we see God's judgments are universal, not only do we find them to be inescapable, thirdly, God's judgments are dreadful. They're dreadful. You can read this in verses 13 through 16. Everything within us wants to lessen the intensity of God's judgments. We don't want to think about God's judgments. We don't want to think about God judging in this way. But Zephaniah reminds us that we ought to be afraid of these judgments. If we were just to flip over to Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, what we would find is that the judgment of God is described as wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven through nine speaks of the judgment of God revealing from heaven, being revealed from heaven, inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the ju- punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The judgments of God are terrible and we're meant to feel that we're meant to stare into the horrifying nature of his judgments everything within us wants to divert the eyes let's look away let's lull ourselves by other light hearted topics And Zephaniah gives it to us in these ways because God wants us to hear it in these ways. If you're able to to read through and to hear a chapter like Zephaniah 1 and you remain unmoved with no sense of dread or concern or fear, you should pray that God would soften your heart. It is a dangerous thing to fall into the hands of a righteously wrathful God. It's a sign of health to hear about God's judgment and to be concerned. These are judgments that are worthy of fear. And it may not seem fearful now, but imagine the terror to get to the great day of the Lord to realize that the things in which you were trusting in to provide refuge for your soul, they don't. There's not refuge in that which you have given your life to. Especially as we consider what's at stake on the other side eternity. Eternity. Eternal joy or eternal suffering inflicted by the active wrath of God. That's what's at stake. Look at verse 14, the mighty man who is unmoved in human battle, what's he doing on the day of the Lord? He is weeping bitterly. It's terrifying. Verse 15, this will be a day of distress, a day of ruin, a day of devastation. He's drawing on the language of God's appearing to Israel and Sinai. And God says, it is right for you to be afraid. What possible motivations could you and I have to make God's judgments seem less horrible? As I was thinking about this, like why why do I want to temper God's judgments when I speak to other people? Maybe I can make, uh, maybe in my mind I think, well, people will object less to God if he's not, Seen as so violently against sin. And yet, the reality of the other side of that is do we want people to fear dying in their sins less? All of this knowledge encourages us to think even of the worst images of God's judgment for our sin. And remember, all of his judgments, they're measured. And they're right. Again, go back and read Deuteronomy 28. God is not acting on a whim. He's not being unfair or showing partiality. I don't want to encourage other people to think, well, maybe his judgments aren't going to be that bad. Romans says our hearts knew all of this truth, and you know what we did with it? We suppressed it. We denied it. Everything within me wants to think about the book of Zephaniah and say, let's open up to chapter 3. Because chapter 3 is one of the most grace-filled realities of the day of the Lord in which salvation will find some. But at what cost? At what cost do we open to Zephaniah chapter three and overlook chapter one. What if you found out that Jesus is coming back in 24 hours, what would you do? I'm certain that you would probably do everything that you possibly could to make sure that you were right with God and that you were living in such a way as to where there was was very little reason for him to be displeased with you. Friends, why is that not our MO every day? What if I told you that he was coming tomorrow and you heard it and you said, ah, that's good news, but let me go take a nap. Wake me up when he's here. That would, that would be a foolish response. Even if you thought you were in a, a place of true refuge, in the Lord, you would desire for other people to find that refuge. And yet, sadly, I believe that many of us are sleeping on the reality that he is coming back and he will come back with judgment. And God desires to say to us through Zephaniah chapter 1, wake up, church. Non-Christian who's here, non-Christian who's listening to this or watching this, wake up. There is inescapable, universal, dreadful judgment that's coming. Don't presume that you have the rest of your life to make it right. You don't know how much longer you have. The world is going to end with God judging all sinful people, the idolatrous and the complacent so for my Christian brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage us. May that motivate, may that compel, may that encourage us to proclaim this gospel boldly, to do hard spiritual things for the eternal good of those around us. There are specific folks that came to mind that I love that are worshiping cultural idols. They're spiritually nonchalant who will receive everything that Zephaniah 1 talks about. And just the reality of this week going, Justin, are you moved by that? Does that break your heart? Christian brothers and sisters, let's not sit on this. We just encourage you this week, read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, to watch the interchange between a rich man and Lazarus who both die, one going into glory and the other going into eternal damnation and listen to the cry of the rich man from a place of eternal damnation. Once he realizes there's no hope for his relief, do you know what he does? I have family members I have family members who are headed here. Will you please go tell them? Covenant Life Church. This is not guilt-inducing talk. This is just, will we, will we, will we go and tell? The judgments of God are real. But that leads us to the last reality of God's judgment. And that is that God's judgments are satisfied. You say, where is that in Zephaniah chapter 1? It's not. (laughs) It's not. This point isn't in chapter 1, but in the next few weeks, I invite you back to just hear of the remarkable detail of the good news that is found in this seemingly horrific letter of judgment. The judgment on the day of the Lord will come. And even though it's inescapable, and even though it's universal, and even though it's dreadful, some will be safe. Some will be safe. In his kindness, the Lord has given us words. Just flip over Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Zephaniah 2, 1 through 3, and just listen. Gather yourselves together. Yes, gather. O nation without shame, before the decree takes effect, the day passes like chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you. And so Zephaniah is saying from God, get together, be prepared. And then verse 3, and seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth, Who have carried out his ordinances, seek righteousness, seek humility. Why? Why seek the Lord? Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. You say, wait a minute, Justin. I thought the judgment of God was inescapable. How in the world am I going to be safe? How in the world can we reconcile? what God promises here in judgment with what he seems to allude to in 2, 1 through 3. All will be judged and yet some will be safe. These two things, how in the world do they come together on this day, this great day of the Lord, the day of reckoning? Zephaniah doesn't explicitly resolve this under the old covenant from which he's writing. But friends, the old is making way and setting up the new covenant. And the new covenant is so... Screaming to us. It is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the best news that you will hear today. As horrific as the judgments of God are, there is a way for you to escape. And it's not by running to the refuge of the law and religious activity. It's by running to the refuge, the only true refuge for our souls, the work in the person of Jesus, the Christ. That great future day of the Lord, in a sense, has been moved to the middle of history. And the inescapable judgment of God has fallen, not merely on those that are worthy, but it has fallen on the one who was not deserving of it. Jesus, God's own divine son, who became a man and bore the wrath of God against sin. That day of judgment at the cross became a day of salvation when God's judgment is satisfied in the death of his son. And so you want to see a door to good news in Zephaniah chapter one? Look at Zephaniah chapter two. This is why we gather around Jesus Christ because we seek his righteousness. That's what, that's what Zephaniah says. Seek the Lord Seek righteousness and seek humility. We gather around Christ because we're seeking a righteousness that we can't muster up, that we do not have, that does not mark who we are. We know our brokenness and so we seek that righteousness in the perfectly righteous one. God the Son come made flesh. Jesus the Christ What does he do? He absorbs the judgment and the wrath of God. For those that are deserving, and yet scandalously for those that who, by faith, will turn from sin and throw themselves on the mercy and the finished work of Jesus the Christ in their place. His perfect righteousness, his substitutionary death on a cross. And on the third day, he rises. He raises from the dead, showing that there's no power in this world that could contain or control or defeat him. He holds it all in his hands. And the Bible makes clear that those who run for refuge in him alone on the great day of the Lord, they will be hidden from his judgments. Not because God is not really concerned, he's willing to let one or two things slide. No, 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 because it has been exhausted on Jesus the Christ. If you're a Christian this morning, that is your story, and that is a story that you were never meant to get over. And if you're not a Christian this morning, I just want to plead with you. There is no other refuge you will run to that will satisfy the problem that you have about the judgment of God that awaits you because of your sin. And so as dreadful, as terrifying and devastating as his judgments are, the good news this morning is that they are avoidable in Christ. And so confess your sins, friends. May the great day of the Lord be a great day of salvation for you. And may that be true of each of us. One pastor told the story of Thomas Wilson laying on his deathbed, looking at his children all around him. He raised them to be Christians, but he had concerns, getting ready to breathe his last. He spoke while he was dying, and he spoke with great seriousness. He spoke as one who was getting ready to stand before the Lord. And he looked at his eldest daughter, because he had particular concerns for her. And he says, look to it that you meet me not at the day of judgment still in your sense. If you are conscious, if you're conscious, I wonder what your last words will be. Casual conversations, jokes. Do you believe enough to look at your loved ones with great concern, and say, don't meet me at the day of judgment, still in your sin. I'm praying that God would give us the humility to know our need, the humility to receive the righteousness of Christ, and the humility to look to others, to plead with them not to meet us on that day, still in their sin. Let's pray. God the adequate response at this point is to repent and so would you by your Holy Spirit lead us to faithful turning from our sin and so in this moment of silence remind us of how we ought to appropriately respond to your word that has gone forth